The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He's the man with the nuclear codes. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, August 29th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Where we left our stable genius last week, he had declared himself the chosen one after a supporter declared that Israeli Jews love Trump, quote, like he's the king of Israel, like he's the second coming of God. This after he had accused most American Jews of being disloyal and stupid. He told reporters he'd asked his advisors if he could award himself the Medal of Honor. He threw an international temper tantrum, canceling a trip to Denmark because it wouldn't sell him Greenland. He promoted the TV show Dancing with the Stars, which will this season feature former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. He bragged about having a bigger crowd than Elton John at one of his Red Hat rallies. He declared the man he chose as the Federal Reserve Chairman as the enemy. He repeated Joseph Stalin's line that the free press, protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, is, quote, the enemy of the people while a group of Trump allies launched a new campaign to discredit legitimate journalism. He threatened to hold any Republican debates on a channel other than Fox News, angry that his favorite network had broadcast some poll numbers he didn't like. He talked to reporters about staying in office, quote, maybe 10 or maybe 14 years. Constitution be damned, apparently. He ordered U.S. companies to stop doing business with China. Not only does he not have that authority, he used the language of a king or a dictator, not a U.S. president, by hereby ordering all trade with China to stop. The stock market fell again, 600 points that time. He floated a tax cut and then took it back, saying American consumers are rich and loaded up with money. He supported better background checks for gun buyers, and then he didn't, and then he did, maybe, he threatened to turn ISIS fighters loose in France and Germany. He accused Google of manipulating 16 million votes in 2016. He claimed that when he visited Dayton and El Paso after the gun massacres, quote, the doctors were coming out of the operating rooms to greet him. The hospitals he visited say that's not true. And once again, it wasn't about the victims of gun violence. It was about him. He's the man with the nuclear codes. And that was last week. This week, the narcissistic madness continued. This week, he slapped new tariffs on Chinese imports, raising prices on Americans by as much as 30%, 70% of the things Americans buy starting October 1st, just in time for the holiday shopping season. Lindsey Graham thinks it's a sacrifice you need to make, telling CBS, we just got to accept the pain that comes with standing up to China. You're rich, says Trump, and loaded up with money. Trump had threatened new tariffs before and then withdrew that threat, claiming he'd saved the Christmas he'd nearly ruined and ultimately did. Trump's tariffs were already costing the average household nearly a thousand bucks a year. Now he's taxing toys and clothing and electronics just in time for holiday shopping. J.P. Morgan Chase says the Trump tariffs will now cost the average household $1,500 a year. He had flipped again and the Grinch had returned. The flip-flopper had returned to. The off-and-on Trump tariffs have made it impossible for American businesses to plan for the months ahead. Farmers in Trump country have lost some of their markets and aren't sure what their next move should be. The other nations of the world, including our allies, are also left wondering how to plan and where all this is headed. On Friday, Trump called Chinese leader Xi Jinping the enemy. By Monday, Trump was calling Xi a brilliant man and a great leader. He said he'd gotten a couple of great phone calls from China that made him optimistic about a new trade deal. China says there were no phone calls. At the G7 summit, Trump told Britain's Boris Johnson he might declare a national emergency in the U.S. over the trade war that he started. He was talking about using his emergency powers to actually force U.S. companies to stop doing business with China. I have a right to if I want, he said. He wanted to prove he really could hereby order. Also at that summit, Trump said he'd had second thoughts about his new Chinese tariffs. I have second thoughts about everything, Trump admitted. Later, the White House would claim his only regret was not having made the tariffs bigger. He claimed his wife Melania had been involved in North Korean diplomacy. Quote, 
The first lady has gotten to know Kim Jong-un, and I think she'd agree with me. He's a man with a country that has tremendous potential. Melania was sitting in the audience and cocked her head quizzically when he said that. The White House later explained that Melania has never even met Kim Jong-un. And for good measure, we've learned this week that the president who believes windmills cause cancer had inquired more than once about using nuclear bombs to keep hurricanes from hitting the United States just as a hurricane was approaching the U.S. The man with the codes to launch this nation's nuclear weapons has skidded out of control like a car on an icy road bumping into almost everything and everyone along the way. And what you have just heard is more than just a list of stuff Trump said in the past two weeks. Taken one by one, the things he says don't mean anything. They are just individual brushstrokes in a portrait of chaos. It's the portrait of an American president who is unfit to hold any position of authority, much less this one. Unfit and unwell. It was Axios that first reported the news that alarmed thinking Americans that Trump had more than once pursued the idea of using nuclear bombs to stop hurricanes. I got it, I got it, said the man with the nuclear codes during a Homeland Security hurricane briefing at the White House. Why don't we nuke them? Why can't we do that, asked the man with the nuclear codes. Because Trump was not the first to consider the idea. It's an idea shot down long ago by scientists after it was suggested in the Eisenhower era. This was also not the first time he suggested nuking a hurricane. A National Security Council memo includes Trump's question in its notes from another meeting. The president's advisors mostly defend Trump's idea, but quoting one, I think somebody's going to use this to feed into the president is crazy narrative. Indeed, we should. Nuking a hurricane would violate one of the few remaining nuclear treaties between the U.S. and Russia, for one thing. For another, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says the nuke would likely have little effect on the storm. And it says radiation from a nuclear blast inside a hurricane would be spread by the rotating winds the way a sprinkler waters your lawn along the entire east coast of the United States. NOAA calls the idea devastating. This year's hurricane season continues until November 30th. The 2020 election is now just over 14 months away. For Donald Trump, the first order of business at the latest G7 economic meeting world leaders was to push for letting Russia back into the group. Russia had been kicked out two years ago for its invasion of Ukraine and its takeover of Crimea. Trump wants Russia back into what was once known as the G8. No other national leader wanted that, but Trump did. In one meeting, Trump tossed a couple of pieces of candy at German Chancellor Angela Merkel with the words, Don't say I never give you anything. To say that these intergovernmental economic meetings are more tense than they were before Trump is an understatement. Trump's trade war with China is pushing the other big nations to the edge of recession since they also suffer the effects of these tariffs. Britain's Boris Johnson sheepishly took issue with Trump's trade war policy, proposing instead trade peace, which he said had always worked for the UK. When Japanese Prime Minister Abe called North Korea's recent missile launches a violation of UN Security Council resolutions, Trump told reporters, We're in a world of missiles, folks, whether you like it or not said the man with the nuclear codes. One by one, a few world leaders were speaking up against Trump at the G7, but gently, to keep him from trashing the entire gathering. By Sunday, Trump's attention seemed to drift away from the international summit and back to Twitter. Birthday greetings for Sean Connery and Regis Philbin. A joke about his poll numbers, another complaint about Fox News, and a reminder that Democrats only want to raise your taxes. And on Monday, when world leaders committed over $22 million to fighting the fires in the Amazon, Trump was absent from that meeting. He didn't go to the meeting about the fire that's consuming the part of the planet that produces one-fifth of our oxygen. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham told reporters Trump had meetings at that time with Germany and India that he had to attend, and that's why he couldn't make it to the Amazon fire meeting. It appears Ms. Grisham, like her predecessor Sarah Sanders, was lying. Germany's Angela Merkel was in the climate meeting, as was India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, so they couldn't have been meeting with Trump. 
And when a reporter later asked Trump why he didn't go, he answered that the meeting was coming up later in the day as if he didn't know it was already underway. Then the story became he was just confused about the time of the meeting, even though he's surrounded by people to help him keep that straight. The odds of that explanation being true are astronomically low, especially considering that Trump has long been a climate change denier who doesn't like being lectured by those who believe the science. Trump aides did, in fact, complain that their French hosts were too focused on what they called niche issues, including climate change. Trump skipped the climate meeting because he just didn't feel like going. It is, after all, about him. The host of this week's G7 summit was French President Emmanuel Macron, who remembered how ugly it got at the last gathering when Trump backed out of signing the traditional joint statement and berated that host, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Macron decided the way to avoid an ugly scene was to skip the traditional statement the world's economic leaders would jointly make at the end of each summit before Trump came along. It was at that summit of world leaders that the current U.S. president praised Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, and Vladimir Putin while insulting his predecessor, saying that Obama had been outsmarted by Putin. Thinking people were shocked, but not surprised. But to Trump, the summit was a success because it gave him a chance to push the idea of having next year's Group of Seven summit here in the U.S., maybe have Vladimir Putin as a guest. Let's have it in Florida, maybe. He knows of a nice little resort down there whose owner could make a bundle hosting the event on behalf of the taxpayers. He spent a lot of time pitching the idea to the other world leaders. Business is sagging at his Doral Golf Club, and having the next G7 at his place appeared to be the most important thing on the president's G7 agenda. Luxurious, magnificent views, incredible restaurants, the biggest and best, close to the airport, he declared, as if he were selling timeshares. The White House now says that was an official announcement that the next G7 will be held at Trump's Doral Golf Club, and as Trump had said, with special guest Vladimir Putin. It is illegal for a president to accept payment from a visiting foreign government here on international business, and yet... He invited them in broad daylight in a pretty clear violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Government ethics officials are already throwing cold water on Trump's idea. But the G7 trip was never about representing the U.S. This was about what a great place he has in Florida and how all the world's leaders should stay there, renting rooms and ballrooms and ordering room service and playing golf, all the while claiming, I'm not going to make any money. Because the G7 was, like everything else, about him. And about calling his own hand-picked head of the Federal Reserve an enemy? Trump replaced Janet Yellen as chair of the Federal Reserve Board because he was frustrated she wasn't lowering interest rates enough. He replaced her with Jerome Powell. Now he's frustrated that interest rates aren't being lowered fast enough. Why is Trump so interested in lower interest rates? He says it's to boost the economy. More specifically, though, it boosts his economy. Trump would personally and through his companies save millions of dollars a year on interest. He has, after all, more than $360 million in debts with Deutsche Bank, mysteriously the only bank that would still lend money to Trump after the others had stopped because they learned Trump doesn't repay his loans, and sometimes that he even sues the people who lend him money in the first place. At this big German-owned New York City bank that's laundered money for Russia, Trump was welcomed with nearly $400 million in loans. Before the election, Trump bragged that he knows how to use the tax laws to his advantage, to pay as little as possible, using every trick in the book, including some in the shadows, and he went on to become the first president elected since Nixon who has fought to hide his tax returns. House Democrats have subpoenaed Trump's financial records from Deutsche Bank. Team Trump has challenged this in court. Deutsche Bank's been reluctant to cooperate with the subpoena, it says, to protect its clients' privacy. In a recent federal appeals court hearing, the judges asked lawyers for Deutsche Bank if it has, among its records, the president's still hidden tax returns. As it turns out, it does. 
The court had given the bank a 4 p.m. Tuesday deadline for answering the question it had been so reluctant to answer. Although names are redacted from the public court filing Deutsche Bank was forced to submit, it's crystal clear the bank has at least some of Trump's personal and corporate tax returns as well as returns from members of his family. Deutsche Bank has also lent millions to the Kushner companies, as in Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and White House advisor. In other words, Trump's bank has everything Congress wants and more, his tax returns and the details of his loans, two birds, one stone. Sources say the tax returns may not tell us much more than we already know that Trump pays very little in taxes. But those loan papers may tell a much more important story, a story big enough, perhaps, to bring down even this president. MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell reported Tuesday night that a source at Deutsche Bank had told him the loan papers revealed Trump's loans from Deutsche Bank had co-signers. The co-signers, he reported, are Russian oligarchs. Trump immediately threatened to sue O'Donnell, and since NBC News was unable to immediately verify the story, O'Donnell apologized for relying on a single source for his reporting. Last night, under that threat from Trump's lawyers, O'Donnell apologized for violating that journalistic ethic, not because the information is wrong, but because it is so far uncorroborated. There's only one way to find out if it's true. Now it's up to that federal appeals court whether to order Deutsche Bank to turn over to Congress the records it finally admits it has. Indications are it will, and just in time for congressional Democrats to return from a summer break in which the president seems to have spun out of control. Impeachment hearings, anyone? This talk of oligarchs and Trump's threat against Lawrence O'Donnell are the subjects of this week's commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. Late Tuesday night during the usual handoff with Rachel Maddow, NBC's Lawrence O'Donnell screwed up. To be clear, his screw-up wasn't necessarily the content of what he said, which admittedly sounded plausible given everything we know about Donald Trump. Indeed, his screw-up was revealing his scoop at all without getting a second source, blabbing his news anyway without running it through the usual journalistic paces. In case you don't know, Lawrence reported that a source from Deutsche Bank told him that Trump's loan documents with the bank were co-signed by Russian oligarchs, plural, close to Vladimir Putin. It was a revelation that, in this twisted era, seemed almost too good to be true. Good in this context is anything that could finally spell doom for Trump, trapping him within an inescapable legal and constitutional disaster. If Lawrence's scoop turns out to be true, and it may very well turn out to be true, I won't be surprised in the slightest. Trump's fealty to Russia is ridiculously obvious, as obvious as his clownish hair and makeup. Something beyond just Russia's assistance in the 2016 election is driving the president to invariably defend Putin over everyone, from the U.S. intelligence community to, most recently, Barack Obama, who Trump said was outsmarted by Putin when Russia invaded Crimea. Trump doesn't do anything just because... Trump's actions are almost always driven by his delicate ego, his turbulent financial shit show, and his subsequent drive to artificially inflate his legitimacy as president. Given the verified reality that Trump was, for years, cultivating business relationships in Russia, including Trump Tower Moscow, it kind of makes sense that he'd cajole an oligarch or three to underwrite his loans. I mean, how else would he secure massive nine-figure loans after numerous bankruptcies and exactly zero American banks willing to lend to him? Factor into the mix the news that Trump has literally sued Deutsche Bank. Why? Well, he sued Deutsche Bank because they sued him for repayment of a $640 million loan. According to sources, Trump personally guaranteed $40 million of that loan. But when Deutsche pursued him for repayment in 2008... He countersued Deutsche Bank for a ludicrous sum, $3 billion. Trump claimed Deutsche was partly responsible for the Great Recession, and it was the Great Recession that apparently prevented Trump from being able to afford to make the loan payments. That's just one of myriad stories illustrating how hopelessly twisted Trump really is, and those of us following along are rarely shocked anymore. In other words, Trump sued Deutsche for $3 billion in 2008, but we're led to believe Trump received another $346 million in loans from Deutsche 
including $125 million for the purchase and renovation of the bedbug-infested Doral Resort in Miami in 2012, four years later. Let's put this another way. Trump failed to repay $640 million in loans in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Yet Deutsche gave him another $364 million just four years after he sued them for billions? No, no way. Not without very wealthy guarantors and possibly one of his testicles. Banks, even street-level loan sharks, don't lend money to deadbeats who sue them in court. It never happens. That is, unless those deadbeats have a ginormous backstop to reassure the lender that what happened last time won't happen again. Yes, Deutsche appears to be a rather shady operation, but they're not morons who dole out free cash to unstable litigious debtors. It just doesn't happen. So how the hell did Trump secure those loans? If it's up to Trump, we may never know. As of this writing, Trump's lawyer, Chuck Harder, which is his real name, threatened to sue both Lawrence O'Donnell and NBC Universal due to the Tuesday night bombshell. Soon after, Lawrence tweeted a carefully worded retraction in which he apologized for not running the story through the normal NBC News vetting process. However, Lawrence absolutely did not retract the content of what he said. Frankly, I hope Trump sues. Short of a premature settlement, Trump would have to produce documents in court proving Lawrence's scoop to be untrue and therefore defamatory. Trump always makes things worse for Trump, but I doubt even he's dumb enough to paint himself into such a corner. Meanwhile, I'll remain skeptical of Lawrence's story simply because of the hastiness with which it was made public, and not to mention the possibility that someone in the White House might be trying to rat-fuck the press. This whole story is now a matter of who blinks first. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. And in the meantime, things couldn't be cozier between Trump and his hand-picked Attorney General William Barr. The Washington Post reported Tuesday that Barr has booked Trump's hotel for a holiday party for 200 people that could make thirty to fifty thousand dollars for the boss. Barr is paying that thirty to fifty thousand dollars out of his own pocket after falsely declaring no obstruction, no collusion in the Mueller report. Does he ever stop giving? Has there ever been a more loyal employee? Never mind that the president and the Justice Department are supposed to remain separate and independent. Barr says the Willard and the Mayflower were already booked on December eighth. Government ethics officials say this is not a problem because it's not an official Justice Department event. It's a William Barr private citizen event. But federal ethics rules do prohibit any federal employee from giving a gift worth more than 10 bucks to their superiors. Bill Barr wants to give his boss 30 to 50,000. It's his party and he'll pay if he wants to. And who knows? He may get the employee discount as the president continues to personally profit from his position. Not coincidentally, it's Barr's Justice Department that's defending Trump's businesses in court against accusations of violating the Constitution's Emoluments Clause instead of fighting for the Constitution. The open bar on December 8th will last four hours before, during, and after the buffet in the presidential ballroom. Our top law enforcement official appears to be breaking the law. There's a lot of that going around these days. Back at the White House, Trump is telling aides he wants his border wall up by Election Day 2020 and that he would like it to be matte black so the sun will make it hot and with spikes at the top. He told his aides that failure means disappointing his supporters, recounting how they cheer whenever he mentions it. He even reportedly believes that failing to build his wall would lead to his defeat in 2020. He's made it clear they need to do, the staff needs to do whatever it takes to get that wall up in time for the election. He's told them he'll pardon anyone who gets caught breaking the law or disregarding environmental rules if it means getting up that wall. Take the land, he's told aides, according to the Washington Post, which broke this story, reporting that Trump has ordered his aides to use the government's eminent domain rights to take the land. Don't worry, Trump is quoted as saying, I'll pardon you. To date, not one inch 
of new wall has been constructed by the Trump administration. About 60 miles worth of fencing has been replaced by various things, including new fencing. There is hope for saving the country in the 2020 election. More than two-thirds of the African Americans who voted in the 2012 presidential election stayed home in 2016 and didn't vote, while turnout increased among white voters. In December of last year, at a rally in Pennsylvania, Trump thanked black voters for not turning out. They didn't come out to vote for Hillary, and that was big, he said, adding, so thank you to the African American community. And for the first time since 1988, Pennsylvania voted for a Republican for president instead of a Democrat in 2016. From all indications, black voters now regret having stayed home and are vowing to turn out in record numbers in 2020 for one overriding reason, to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. It is a motivation they share with other Democrats and Like other Democrats, black voters say they will back any candidate who can beat Trump. A new Quinnipiac poll shows Trump losing to a Democrat by as much as 16 points, and certainly by nine points or more. Even Pete Buttigieg beats Trump in this poll, surprising only because he substantially trails Biden, Bernie, and Elizabeth Warren in Democratic polling. The point is, this is very bad news for Trump. The Quinnipiac poll puts his popularity at 38%. Another poll has him at 36. Disapproval ratings are all now above 50%, closer to 60. Even strongly disapprove has reached 50%. He now has fewer than one in three independents, the group perhaps most responsible for Trump's success in 2016. He's even slipped in confidence over his handling of the economy, which had been his strongest selling point to many. Trump is ripe for defeat and seems to be making that more true with each passing day on the road to 2020. Are we there yet? Although Biden has the lead for now, it's increasingly apparent that almost any leading Democrat could beat Trump because of the damage he's done to himself. One poll shows that nearly twice as many voters strongly disapprove of him than strongly approve, 43% to 24. The enthusiasm is much higher on the Democratic side. Trump's approval rating has now fallen to 36% with a disapproval rating of 62%. He's 60% or more negative on guns, health care, foreign policy, and immigration. The latest has him denying automatic citizenship to the children of American soldiers born overseas. At 36 weeks, expectant mothers would have to return to the U.S. to give birth, leaving the husband and father overseas, or their child would be considered foreign-born. In American history, we have never treated soldiers and their families in this way. And now his administration is deporting sick and dying kids, kids with cancer, kids brought to this country for life-saving treatments not available in their home countries, and in some cases, the parents have been given just days' notice to get out. The greater his cruelty to children, the lower his poll numbers on immigration. His strong point, the economy, he now has a 51% disapproval rating on the thing that was supposed to have gotten him reelected. Only 35% of us want him reelected. His popularity has slipped in the red and purple counties he'd won in 2016, and it's all but bottomed out in the counties that went for Clinton. And although most voters are still against impeachment, partly because Congress is still on vacation, they do want him out. But the voters appear to be saving that for 2020, despite the urgency to address what he says and does between now and then. But if any Democratic candidate can beat Trump by the double-digit lead now held by Joe Biden, Trump's trouncing would drag down the entire Republican ticket, especially the more voters realize that Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans have been Trump's enablers. And that would hand the White House and the Senate to the Democrats restoring Democratic control to both houses of Congress. And then came Joe Walsh, the former Illinois congressman, not the musician. There are a few things to keep in mind about Walsh regarding his decision to challenge Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. Walsh says he's stunned that no other Republicans have stepped up to take on Trump, even though one has, kind of, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. Weld is not insulted and, in fact, says he welcomes the Walsh campaign. 
who knows, says, well, the networks might even cover Republican primary debates. Joe Walsh sounds like a Democrat when he talks about Trump calling the president unfit, incompetent, narcissistic, bigoted, and nuts. But Joe Walsh is a Tea Party Republican who enthusiastically supported Trump and joined in the bashing of President Obama. Unfortunately for Mr. Walsh, we have the racist tweets he posted in 2016 calling Obama a Muslim. In 2017, he tweeted about Kamala Harris, writing, if you're black and a woman, you can say dumb things. And then there's that whole ugly child custody fight with his ex-wife. Former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake is also thinking about challenging Trump on the Republican side, as are former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford and former Ohio Governor John Kasich. At the moment, none of these guys has a chance to beat Trump out of the Republican nomination. That's because... 84% of Republicans plan to vote Trump in 2020 and because the Trump campaign had months ago merged with the Republican National Committee, which ultimately decides who the nominee will be. Still, debates, if they happen, would be interesting. Trump's challengers could hurt his popularity even if they couldn't win. And in a Republican primary, they would chip away at Trump's vote count, leaving him even weaker politically for a campaign fight with, insert Democrat here. Some devastating things were revealed this week that will only serve to further damage the trust we had in the way we elect our leaders. Strike one. For the first time ever, a federal appeals court has upheld the right of some members of the Electoral College to vote their conscience, even if their state law required them to vote for the winner of the popular vote. Colorado's Michael Baca was supposed to vote for Clinton, but to try to keep Trump from getting an Electoral College victory, Baca scratched out Hillary's name and wrote in Republican John Kasich. Colorado election officials did what states usually do with these rare cases. They threw away the write-in ballot based on their state law that says the elector has to vote in agreement with the popular vote. But this federal court ruled Baca had every right to do what he did, as do others in the college who are known somewhat ironically as faithless electors. By this ruling, the court has changed the way we choose our presidents. By this ruling, just a few select individuals would have the power to overturn the will of the people. In an electoral college tie, the next president could be determined by just one person. The court ruled that if a state wants, it can require its electors to pledge loyalty to a single party and that the electors can be chosen in any way the state wishes. The court said that once an elector has signed that ballot, they are no longer under state jurisdiction but are instead performing then a federal function and the federal government says he or she can do what they want, voters be damned. Colorado plans to appeal the ruling, but if the Supreme Court agrees with this appeals court, It's another blow to the popular vote. Strike two. As ransomware hackers continue to extort millions of dollars from cities and hospitals and other institutions, there is now great concern that ransomware could also infect our voter registration computers. We officially learned only recently that Russian hackers had gotten into the voter registration systems in all 50 states in 2016. Intelligence officials believe they will return in 2020 to manipulate, disrupt, or destroy the data. Quoting a senior intelligence official, we assess these systems as high risk. And they say that risk includes ransomware in which the hacker demands big money to give the victim its data back. Next month, the federal government will roll out a new program to protect voter databases. Many states did not listen to warnings from the federal government about hackers in 2016. Perhaps a few more will listen this time. And strike three. In the midst of everything that's going on around us, we effectively now have no federal election commission. The Republican vice chairman of that commission resigned this week, leaving only three members. That's not a quorum. There are six seats on that commission. It takes four members to make a quorum. Without a quorum, no decisions can be made. No investigations can be launched. No conclusions can be made about investigations that are wrapping up. No recommendations can be made. And no new rules can be made. The FEC has been a fairly weak agency in recent years, but now it's dead in the water. A surviving Republican member 
says the commission will still be able to review case files. And the Democratic chair of the commission, Ellen Weintraub, says the FEC would, quote, still be able to shine a strong spotlight on the finances of the 2020 campaign. They just can't do anything. And it's such a perfect time. A company in Dade City, Florida, publishes daily newsletters for various U.S. government agencies, including the Labor Department, Housing and Urban Development, and U.S. Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE. The newsletters include articles from various news outlets, giving department managers a look at the kind of coverage their agency is generating. Most of these media outlets are legitimate news-gathering organizations. Most, but not all. This Florida company, TechMiz, that's Tech-M-I-S, has also been including in its newsletters for immigration officials articles from the Western Journal by a publisher who pushed the falsehood that Obama was Muslim. The newsletters going to ICE also include articles from the Epoch Times, the newspaper owned by China's Falun Gong religious sect, now supporting QAnon and the deep state conspiracy theory it promotes. And the newsletters included links to VDARE, a racist and anti-Semitic website, and, of course, links to Fox News. Immigration and possibly other government employees were being sent white nationalist propaganda. Fortunately, among the immigration officials getting these newsletters were immigration judges who objected to what they were seeing and to the ideas they were seeing promoted to other immigration officials. Their part of ICE is now planning to cancel its newsletter contract with TechMiz. The FBI says there was a surge of tips from the public after the gun massacres in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. Public concern about domestic terrorism spiked in response to the spike in the terror itself. Public awareness had been heightened and along with it, public action. People who knew people with stockpiles of guns called the FBI. It's one of the reasons the Bureau has made dozens of arrests in the past month, preventing nearly that many potential mass shootings and possibly hundreds more deaths. A person can call their local field office at 1-800-CALL-FBI or at tips.fbi.gov. In the stand-your-ground state of Florida, the white Michael Draca is going to prison for killing the black Marquise McLaughlin over a convenience store parking space more than a year ago. At first, as in the Trayvon Martin case, Draca was claiming self-defense under Florida's stand-your-ground law. He said he carried his gun everywhere he went and had a real problem with people who park in a handicapped space, kind of the George Zimmerman of parking lots. Draca later dropped the stand-your-ground defense and went with a straight self-defense plea. Now, likely facing 30 years in prison, Draca wasn't even arrested for nearly a month after the shooting because the Pinellas County Sheriff, who is also white, supports the stand-your-ground law. The NRA, for all its other troubles, has lost a lot of friends over the past 10 years of gun massacres, friends as in senators and representatives. A New York Times analysis shows that Democrats have almost completely severed their ties with the gun group in both the House and the Senate. The NRA still has muscle among Republicans, though, and the Senate they currently control. And the NRA has been flexing its muscle in the Senate, especially since the revived debate about background checks. But the NRA must surely know that if the Republicans were to, say, lose control of the Senate then the NRA's Capitol Hill muscle would atrophy. Time was it didn't matter to the NRA which party was in power because it had influence over both. Time was a failing grade from the NRA meant a candidate would lose the election. Today, not so much. Partly cloudy with a chance of isotopes. While the Russian government from Putin on down has been denying any kind of radioactivity concerns after that nuclear explosion on its northern coast, Russia's weather agency has named four kinds of radioactive particles that were released by that explosion. The Russian weather agency, in unusual candor, said these radioactive particles were formed by the radioactive gases released during nuclear fission. And the weather agency warned that the gases are likely to drift a long way. 
Cesium-137 was found in the muscle tissue of a doctor who treated patients with extreme radiation exposure. The doctor was not warned of this risk because secrecy is the Kremlin way. The evidence indicates that the radiation at the explosion site is even worse than was feared. As for that doctor, the Kremlin says he likely got that cesium-137 in his muscle tissue from eating Fukushima crabs during his vacation in Thailand. And with that, Russia has announced its first floating nuclear power plant will set sail tomorrow, passing by Alaska on its way to the Arctic town of Pevik. What could possibly go wrong? Greenpeace is calling the ship the Nuclear Titanic. As brand names go, Johnson & Johnson is legacy in the U.S., a name you can trust. But the company that has for decades sold us baby shampoo and Band-Aids lied to make even more money off drugs. A judge has ruled that J&J played down the dangers of opioids while overselling their benefits, which he also found to be a violation of the law. J&J had contracted poppy growers in Tasmania to supply a majority of the opiates used for making oxycodone and other pain drugs. It was the ruling the state of Oklahoma was rooting for in its lawsuit against the corporate giant. In that lawsuit, Oklahoma had asked for $17 billion to cover treating addicts, the court that processes them, and any related costs over the next 20 years. The judge, however, ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay Oklahoma $572 million, not $17 billion. Oklahoma is mostly satisfied and says it will use that more than half a billion dollars along with the settlements it's being paid by the other companies it sued, Purdue Pharma and Teva Pharmaceuticals, who were jointly paying $450 million. Johnson & Johnson says it will appeal. Meanwhile, J&J stock actually went up a bit after the half-billion-dollar ruling because investors expected the payment to be much higher. That high cannot last, however with more than 2,000 other lawsuits waiting in the wings now being consolidated into two big cases that were to be heard this fall. The next stop would be a courtroom in Cleveland, Ohio. Meanwhile, a judge in Kentucky has already ordered Purdue Pharma to make public its internal documents about how it marketed OxyContin, prompting Purdue Pharma to offer an out-of-court settlement of up to $12 billion. Purdue is now offering 10 to $12 billion to settle those 2,000 outstanding lawsuits filed by cities, counties, and states. The lawsuits also name the Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma and accuses them of draining the company's money into their own pockets. The family has reportedly now offered $3 billion of its own wealth to settle and has offered to give up control of their company. Purdue Pharma says this is a take-it-or-leave-it offer since its next step would be to file for bankruptcy, leaving it unable to make such a large settlement. A federal judge has put a stop to most of Missouri's new eight-weeks abortion ban just one day before it was to go into effect. The new law would have banned abortions after the first eight weeks of pregnancy when many women still don't even know they're pregnant. Doctors who performed abortions after eight weeks would lose their licenses and go to jail. The law also made no exceptions for rape, incest, or Down syndrome. The judge's ruling was a rare victory for Planned Parenthood, which brought the lawsuit. In offering to help fight the Amazon forest fires, the European Union, minus Donald Trump, offered just over $22 million. But its help, experts agree Brazil needs to fight the flames that are burning the planet's lungs, the region that produces 20% of our oxygen. Brazil, however, under President Bolsonaro, immediately rejected the offer, saying it had 43,000 military troops battling the blaze already. Bolsonaro angrily said no, telling the European leaders to mind their own business that Brazil is not one of their colonies. Later, Bolsonaro said he would accept the money if... French President Emmanuel Macron apologized for calling Bolsonaro a liar and threatening to kill a European Union trade deal with Brazil. Bolsonaro has created the political climate in Brazil that makes it okay to clear valuable forest land to grow soybeans and raise cattle to make the world more hamburgers. Bolsonaro, like Trump, favors industry over nature and his policies reflect that, like Trump's. Like Trump, Bolsonaro claims... The fires are being set to make him look bad. There's that 
him again. Trump says he supports Bolsonaro and says he's offered Brazil firefighting help separately. The Amazon currently has the most fires it's had in at least 10 years. Experts say that if the Amazon loses just 3% more of its rainforest, the whole planet will feel it. In the U.S., we have the Tongass National Forest in southeastern Alaska. It is 16 million acres big. So big, it's another part of the planet's lungs. The Tongass Forest is thick with spruce trees, including some very old ones, along with cedar, hemlock, and a wide variety of wildlife. About half the salmon that ultimately make their way to the west coast of the U.S. swim upstream in the creeks and rivers that run through that forest, feeding a nearly $1 billion fishing industry in the U.S. If the trees go away, so do the fish. President Clinton declared Tongass National Forest off-limits to logging as one of his last acts before leaving office more than 18 years ago. George W. Bush tried to reverse that policy and actually allowed loggers to start selling Tongass lumber they'd harvested until a federal judge stepped in. Now comes Trump, who says he has redefined forest management, and indeed he has. The president has instructed Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to remove the restrictions from more than half the Tongass National Forest, nearly 10 million acres available for clearing. Forestry, says a Trump staffer, is an obsession of his. Watch now to see if a federal judge once again puts a stop to this. Because if the trees go away, the fish go away. And the world loses another oxygen-producing, carbon-eating forest. Today, the Trump administration is announcing the rollback of rules about methane emissions, a major contributor to climate change. Methane makes up only about 10% of the pollution we produce here in the U.S., but it is much more damaging than the carbon dioxide we produce so much of. Trump's latest attack on our air and our planet are another gift to his coveted fossil fuel industry. The methane rules were enacted by the Obama administration, which does a lot to explain why Trump is eliminating them and the planet along with them. David Koch went from Wichita, Kansas, to having $60 billion, largely thanks to a company he and his brother Charles inherited from their father. It's a company that's mostly made its money in petroleum, fossil fuels, and the Koch brothers have been a major force in promoting the denial of climate change. They've paid a lot toward that cause. Like their father, who helped found the John Birch Society, the Koch brothers had a great distrust of government, and they also spent a good deal of their wealth pushing the Republican Party farther to the right, arguing that less government means more freedom and prosperity for the people. Did I mention that David and his brother Charles each accumulated about $60 billion? In the 2016 election, the Koch empire spent nearly $900 million nearly as much as the Republican National Committee had spent that year. The Koch brothers provided much of the dark money that was routed through nonprofit groups to get around campaign finance laws. When current Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Congress, he represented the district that includes Wichita and was widely known as the Koch brothers congressman. Well, now there is one. David Koch died this past week at the age of 79 after a long battle with prostate cancer. He leaves behind billions of dollars, much of which will go to the conservative causes that Brother Charles lives on to support. The planet could use a win today, and we'll have one in a moment, along with Don't Toss That Kidney, Bed Bugs, and It's Just Plain Big in the final segment after this. The average investigative article in Rolling Stone magazine is 7,500 words long. The average number of words in one of my weekly reports in the Trump era 10,500. The words come from me, but the news comes from a variety of reliable sources that charge for their services, rightfully. There are computer expenses, software, server fees, website, high-speed internet, and the care and feeding of professional broadcast quality equipment to make the show listenable. The newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. 
and there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, going through my page and bookmarking, that still helps. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, thank you. The planet could use a win, and here's one now. Scientists working not far from this studio have become the first to grow Atlantic coral in a laboratory. This is huge. This is a huge scientific breakthrough. It could make a monumental difference in restoring the coral lost from the Florida Reef Tract, which is also known as America's Barrier Reef. Barrier as in a barrier from ocean waves and storms. But it is also where seafood reproduce and raise their young, providing food for millions and jobs for millions. They are, like the forests, a crucial part of our ecosystem. This breakthrough means we might still be able to save coral from extinction. Project Coral is the work of the Center for Conservation at the Florida Aquarium at Tampa Bay. Hurricane Dorian is gaining strength, though, after brushing Puerto Rico and ripping through the Virgin Islands. The storm's expected to be a Category 3 by the time it makes landfall on Florida's east coast on Monday, Labor Day. Florida has declared a state of emergency as another major hurricane approaches the continental U.S. Hurricane preparations begin today at this studio on Florida's west coast, and it may impact the production of next week's Buzzcast. We'll know more about that in the next 36 hours. With some 93,000 people on waiting lists for kidneys, usually for between 5 and 10 years, the U.S. is throwing away kidneys other countries would have used. France would have transplanted more than 60% of the kidneys the U.S. rejected between 2004 and 2014. The difference is France accepts older donors. In France, the average donor age is 56 because most of the people getting transplants are now over the age of 60. In the U.S., the average donor age is 39. If the U.S. were to follow the French lead, 35,000 people now on the waiting list wouldn't have to wait a day longer. 10,000 years of life would be saved. This according to a study by the Journal of the American Medical Association. The next state to legalize recreational marijuana might surprise you. It's Florida. An effort is underway to get it on the 2020 ballot, lest anyone worry about a low turnout in 2020. The founder of a big Florida law firm is behind the effort. John Morgan was greatly responsible for getting Florida's medical marijuana law on the ballot and is expected to be very successful in this effort. A pro-pot group is well on its way to having enough petition signatures, and Morgan says, quote, I believe that marijuana should be legal, and I think we have the time and money to get it done. Morgan spent $7 million on that medical marijuana initiative in 2016, another presidential election year, and it passed in a landslide with two-thirds of the state's support. Stay tuned. DEA, and this is not a bust, the Drug Enforcement Administration this week announced it is approving more scientific and medical research into marijuana. The announcement means that more independent researchers are being granted federal permission to grow what is still classified as a Schedule One drug. The researcher's mission is to now look into the various types and strengths of marijuana to find out scientifically what they do and don't do. The DEA also says it's now okay for Americans to grow hemp so long as its THC content is below three-tenths of a percent. But a study by Arizona State University Psychology Department is raising concern about the spread of marijuana concentrates, known on the streets as butter, wax, honey oil, dabs, and black glass. Their research shows that about one in four Arizona teens have tried a concentrate at least once, including most of the teens who were using weed anyway. But concentrates, which are often vaped, have between 40 and 70% more THC than today's strong weed. The sales figures from Washington State, where pot is legal, concentrates now account for one out of every five purchases. Those sales up nearly 150% in the past two years. But concentrates sold on the street may be unsafe and are a suspect in the now more than 200 cases of lung illness in vapors across the country. 
It was a teenager from New Zealand who apparently spread measles at Disneyland in California. Those visiting the original Disney theme park between August 11th and August 15th are advised to watch for symptoms over the next three weeks, unless, of course, they've been vaccinated. The robocalls had gotten on the nerves of the people, and so it was reported in the media. Lawmakers hoping to get reelected saw this uproar about robocalls and started putting pressure on the FCC and the big phone companies to do something about it. The attorneys general in all 50 states wanted something done about it, too. A number of companies were already working on this, and some had even put some of their new anti-robocall technology to work. But now the big phone companies have all agreed and promised to adopt new call blocking and other technologies to not only stop the calls, but to track down the robo-callers who often swindle people out of money. It won't be the end of spam calls, but it should help. And it should help a lot. Angel has fallen, has risen to the top spot in theaters this week, opening with just over $21 million. Good Boys is second. Lion King hangs in third. Hobbs and Shaw fell hard to fifth place. For all the movies, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, kindly click through the Fandango link on the upper left at buzzburbank.com. This week's travel segment has good news for a little resort in Florida known as Doral. Close to the airport, this golf resort is nestled between the Miami airport and an industrial park. Perhaps you've heard of it. Its owner is very famous. Some would say infamous. But the good news for the president is that the bedbug lawsuit has gone away. Court records show that Trump's Florida lawyers have settled out of court with a business traveler who sued the resort after his back, face, and arms were covered in dozens of bedbug bites. There are photographs. The Doral Resort has bungalows in villas named after famous golfers. Try the Jack Nicklaus, where business traveler Eric Linder stayed. It should be bedbug-free by now, and it's just 300 bucks a night. Spread the word. No bedbugs at Trump's place. Sleep tight. You'd have to go to Louisiana if you wanted to see the world's biggest grapefruit. It's just plain big. The world's biggest, apparently. Its circumference is nearly 29 inches, and it weighs nearly 8 pounds. It's nearly the size of a basketball. As grapefruits go, it's just plain big. They're called howler monkeys because they howl. They were howling with delight this week when they escaped from their enclosure at the zoo in Abilene, Texas, after a zookeeper forgot to close the door. The howling monkeys were captured and back in their home within 15 minutes, the zoo says no monkeys or humans were injured and that zoo-goers were never in any danger. Sure, they say that now. But at a teaching zoo in Gainesville, Florida, the skink is missing. And they think someone stole it. A clear case of skink napping. A skink, by the way, is a lizard. And this particular Solomon Islands female is a light brownish-green with scales. She is 25 years old and has lived at that zoo for 20 of those years. The zoo would like her back and suspects that the skink went on the market as an exotic pet. About 3,000 bicyclists took part in this year's nude bike ride in Philadelphia. One couple that's been together seven years met at the nude event. We run around naked a lot, he said. I took a picture of him the moment we met, she said, and seven years later, we're still naked. This was the first year the ride was held in August. It had always been in September before but the writers decided that in September, it's too chilly in Philly. In Sugarland, Texas, outside Houston, police are looking for the woman on surveillance video who broke into a Botox clinic. The video shows the woman used a chainsaw to get in to steal a variety of anti-aging products before speeding away in her light-colored Mercedes. 92 people in New Hampshire have just been ordered to surrender their vanity license plates. One of those people is Wendy Auger of Rochester, New Hampshire. For the past 15 years as a mom, Wendy has had, as her personalized plate, the characters PB4WEGO, which reads, P before we go. After 15 years, the state has suddenly decided Wendy's plate does not conform to legal requirements. Wendy Auger, therefore, is now also one of the people appealing the state's order to surrender the plates. Who, as a mom, asked Wendy, 
hasn't said that to the kids before leaving the house. And finally, he's one of those eight-year-old boys who loves cars. He drives bumper cars and go-karts every chance he gets. His parents have even let him practice driving a real car on their own property. They may have taken things too far. This week, the boy's mother noticed the boy was missing, along with her Volkswagen Golf. Police caught up with the eight-year-old driver. Well, they found him parked alongside of a road with the hazard triangle out and the flashers on. The boy told police he'd pulled over because he started feeling uncomfortable when he got the little car up to 87 miles an hour. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I hope we'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.